Everyone eats out every day, but people don't think about how food arrives on the plate. This is Grounded, and I'm Lauren Mitchell. Join me as we delve deep into the challenges, expertise, and experiences of professionals and innovators in the food service industry. Grounded is powered by the Buyer's Edge Produce Division. Our mission is to provide innovative solutions and excellent service to food service operators. All right, welcome to Fresh from the Field. And today I have Rob Bonke on as one of our field experts to discuss how climate and weather can impact some of the commodities that we buy or enjoy as we eat out every day. So Rob, with the recent Hurricane Adalia that hit a few weeks ago in Florida, can you give us a little understanding of just some of the impacts that are going to hit the produce industry as a result? Hey, Lauren, th thanks for having me on. And yes, um, you know, two roughly two weeks ago, we had the uh, Hurricane Idalia that went through Florida and South Georgia. And, um, you know, crops really affected by that were a lot of row crops like squash, peppers, zucchini. There, uh, there will be some impacts to the citrus crops. Um, you know, it's just really the, we need to assess what the residual impacts are from this storm. And we won't see those really until the crops mature a little more. It's still a little early, but you know, we expect a 20 to 30% loss on the crop, um, you know, down there, but um, you know, we just have to kind of watch where we're going, watch what we're doing and see how this thing develops. We've also lost a lot of citrus down there in the Valdosta Lake Park area due to this there were sustained winds of 120 plus mile an hour. We won't see those impacts for at least another month though. And that's just because, you know, viruses from, from the moisture take time to really, you know, get into the plants and so forth. Wind damage, I mean, plants can recover from the wind damage, but you really don't see anything until that flower develops into fruit and we see what the yields are. And a lot can be that can be the same thing as far as the um, the West Coast with the Hurricane Hillary. A lot of that residual damage is just now being felt. You're starting to see some virus pressure and some some bloom drop and things like that that normally happen after it takes weeks to really see that after a storm. You know, another great example of this is the is the lack of rain in March and April in central Mexico. It affected the avocado crop. We had real small size and it drove the price of avocados up very high. Um, you know, and those are things that don't happen until months after these these weather events. So, you know, I know a lot of the hype about being, you know, the initial hype. Oh, my gosh, what happened with the storm, blah, blah, blah. Now you just have to really see what happens with the impacts months later. And that's where we come in and we really start to assess what's happening in the field. Thank you so much, Rob. So for, for more information, I'll provide an update to our market report in the show notes. But without further ado, we have an excellent guest on today, Kevin Quant with True Food Kitchen, a very produce-heavy concept, discusses his experience in supply chain and specifically sourcing fresh produce in general. Thanks again for your time today, Rob. Thank you. Wellness seekers and flavor fanatics, this conversation is definitely for you. Today's guest has the mind for produce and food and brings sustainable ingredients into the supply chain. He's a fourth generation individual in the food service business. He helped build and drive Sweet Green's unique supply chain from the ground up. He's a strategic advisor at Sustainagrain and currently the Senior Vice President of Supply Chain and Sustainability at True Food Kitchen. Kevin Quant, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's quite the wow. introduction. I'm not used to that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited to talk to you. You are um, so well appreciated in the industry. You have such a unique background um, and I just, uh, I'm, I'm very excited to get into it. The true food kitchen, we have one in, in Newport beach where I'm from and my girlfriends and I would love to go out there. We always felt that once we ate there, we'd leave there feeling better about ourselves and our bodies. I mean, just the food is so nourishing. Mm -hmm. Um, if anyone has a chance to, to take a look at the menu, you'll, you'll read it 
you know, it says wild caught tuna or Vital Farms jammy egg. I mean, it is just so delicious and nutritious. So we'll get into that. Just very, uh, my hat goes off. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> it's, it truly is. It's pretty special. <clears throat> All right. Um, well, why don't we, why don't we start here? Um, kind of given your background. So again, your fourth generation. So you were kind of born into the food service business. So where did your path kind of originate and how did, how did your, um, how did your time come up into true food kitchen? Sure. I'll try to be somewhat succinct, but I definitely, uh, it's a generational thing. It's, it's in the blood, as they say, um, actually my ancestors going even further back were beer brewers that settled in uh, upstate New York. My sister is the historian, so, um, I can't, I can't get into too many details. I'll take her word for it, but, uh, yeah, so the brothers, uh, Adam and Andrew Quant, um, started this brewery and then, um, uh, their son, uh, Andrew decided to, uh, take a sales territory and then he started selling ice along with the beer and then what goes well on ice is fish. So he started selling fish, which turned into a fish market. And then I went all the way to a broadline distribution company, which, uh, you know, my grandfather, I worked with my uncles, my grandfather, my father, and, uh, kind of did everything starting out in upstate New York, like with a regional broadline distributor. And we competed against Cisco in us and a company called Ginsburg up there. And, uh, that's kind of what I grew up thinking I was going to do for the rest of my life. Uh, cause that's what, that's what I saw. And, uh, <laughs> Uh, so I did every job I was preparing to, you know, be the next generation there. And then somewhere along the way, after business school, I spent time in Atlanta and, and, uh, worked at Unipro, which is a cooperative of broadline distributors, great experience, still friends with folks there today. Um, I went back, my grandfather called me, he was 78 and he said, Hey, you know, if you're going to do this, you got to come back now and it's the time. And so I did. And that's when I jumped into the purchasing, uh, section of, uh, or procurement for the company. And I started connecting with suppliers, um, you know, far and wide, to whatever our customers needed, I had to track it down and get it in and get it to the customer. So love doing that. Um, ultimately, um, just with transition planning, et cetera, uh, just discovered that Hey, this wasn't going to be my path, uh, forever. And so really looked outside the company. Um, and in 2013 or so had an opportunity to join a startup called blue apron doing something had, that hadn't been really done before, which is meal kits delivered right to people's homes. And so I jumped into New York city, that whole food scene, which, you know, three hours South of where I was living was like a completely different world. So it wasn't just the startup new, completely new food business. It was also acclimating to living in New York. That was pretty amazing. And I still, my wife and I still like treat it as a badge of courage when we <laughs> uh, think about living in New York and, and kind of conquering that lifestyle. <clears throat> so yeah, it kind of took that from very, you know, incubation type stage, uh, at Blue Apron where we're selling not that many meal kits and only around New York and the East coast all the way out to a national, you know, hundreds of thousands of boxes going out every week. And yeah, I felt like I was grocery shopping for, uh, tons of people. And I think the difference <laughs> from what I was doing in upstate New York to the blue apron in terms of sourcing and food, really, that was really my first, um, you know, pathway towards understanding how food is made, who makes it and what makes one ingredient that's the same, has the same name different from the other and, and how much that matters. Right. So if you're a meal kit, you're actually selling the ingredients of the recipe. Right. And so those ingredients really have to shine. And that was part of the gig. It's like, can't just be, you know, this, you know, tomatoes, it has to be very special tomatoes grown by very special people. And then sweet green came calling, as you mentioned, uh, it was around 30, 30 locations and, uh, got to jump into a whole new world of restaurant chain, uh, startups saying, Hey, we, these young founders saying, we believe that food can be healthy, delicious, and accessible. And, uh, I believed it. And I, and so that just really, uh, you know, popped the top off of 
going after sustainable sourcing and really understanding how food is made, where it comes from, who's doing it. Because at Sweetgreen, it wasn't, we literally had, I think, you know, today there's still chalkboards in there saying when you eat these ingredients, these, they came from these locations. So as we began to nationalize, we still had to stay localized and, uh, that I'm not sure how, how often that's been done, but it was felt pretty unique as we continued to build that over my time there. And then just well, I'm going to stop thought, you there. I have yeah. two couple Go questions. That come up. You're, this is perfect. So I want to okay. understand your storyline. It's so fascinating. I mean, you moved out of the freezer into distribution and then literally, as you described, walking the streets of New York, grocery shopping for, you know, households. I mean, essentially when people hear meal kit, which is Blue Apron or HelloFresh, um, you know, it's the boxes that arrive to your doorstep with all the ingredients in the recipe. I'm fascinated just knowing sourcing, how how it's impacted in terms of understanding getting the carrots or watermelon or what have you into a box. I'm sure it's got to meet weight requirements. And for those that are in sourcing, you know, the focus on it needing to hit a certain spec has got to be wildly important. Can you touch on just some of the challenges or the dynamics in terms of sourcing for a meal kit like that? And yeah, it was, it was, uh, learn as you go and fix problems, uh, on the fly. And, uh, spec was just one of them yields tremendously important because, uh, some ingredients were prepped and you're talking about fresh produce, right? And so we were going to give eight ounces of squash. I'm just making it up. Um, <laughs> one, if they, if they come in at three ounces or, or 16 ounces, You've got to, you know, figure that out. And, uh, it was huge part of what we did and a huge learning curve. And, uh, yeah, just to back up, even in New York city, I, you know, I've got to dust off the cobwebs, but I remember starting out again, picture yourself moving to New York city and within days starting this job, I had to walk around in, in Brooklyn and go to Asian produce distributors, uh, that were focused on supporting, you know, Chinese and, and, uh, Asian restaurants and grocery stores and like knock on the door and try to explain what a meal kit company was. And I wanted to buy, you know, thousands of pounds of, of whatever they had available to them to make this really special dish because we were trying to be extremely innovative. And, you know, it was, and, and it was amazing is I still have friends from that kind of crazy knocking on the door, taking the subways to places around New York, just finding things. I was literally going around. And then within three years, I just remember one of, one of the last trips was flying to Seattle and meeting, um, some, some gentleman who flew in from Japan to negotiate millions of pounds of sockeye salmon that was wild caught in, in Alaska. And it was just really like, in that three years, it went from taking the subways and finding food to, you know, kind of a global, global transaction, which is fascinating. Yeah. I mean, that's it's so cool. Sometimes your challenges are at the ground level and, and you know, it's, it's about just hunting down a certain ingredient type and then it just becomes less in- intimidating to attack the next different type of challenge. Um, it's blowing my mind because, again, typically we have guests on with a set menu usually over the course of a year at the minimum, but some we've described multiple years of the same menu because it works. Um, People go there and they expect to see their favorites listed. And with the exception of an LTO or two, they know year over year the commodities that they're going to be sourcing and the contracts that they're negotiating and the price points year over year changes. But with meal kit, it's not only demand driven, so your quantities are somewhat in flux, but also just how how much you're cycling through different recipes and then the ingredients there within. So from a sourcing standpoint, trying to keep some of the same consistent commodities in there, just, and then again, just trying to, to incorporate new ingredients and then sourcing just from a mass standpoint, it blows my mind. So I, it's so crazy. Yeah. I mean, just to, you know, just to go back to that, what, you know, you're describing when I first started, it was a few folks, you know, in a warehouse office and, you know, that one of the founders would write the recipes and then hand them to me, let's say Tuesday for the Wednesday for the next week. And I had to get the food in, I had to be prepped and into the box out by, you know, starting Sunday night into Monday. And that's how we started. And, um, you know, and then I, when I left, we were 
pushing eight, eight weeks to, tw- to three months out in advance, but, and, you know, it was so hand to mouth, bang, bang, like here, here the items, find it. And so back to, to specs and quality inspection, et cetera, you know, as we got bigger, it just, it, it was, it was so challenging. I mean, there was year one, I had to get yellow, uh, squash and, um, not a problem. I, I could go to the union square farmer's market or get a, a local distributor to fill my small order. Year two, I wiped out the East Coast uh, that week. That <laughs> we just needed it that one week, and then we didn't need it wow. anymore. And then wow. year three, we were getting to South America, and just like, and then actually was realizing that I was disrupting my own market and actually increasing costs because I was calling the whole Eastern Seaboard and every, every person I've ever networked with, and uh, saying I need yellow squash in a, in a big way, and then they were all in a frenzy, and all of a sudden. The, the market was being driven up. So it was wow. very unique. Yeah. Compared to, to, to most situations. But at a certain point you pivoted from cost and efficiency to again, understanding sourcing and quality, but also just again, the, the integrity of each ingredient. You mentioned sweet green. And if you've been to into one guys, you, you walk inside, they do have an enormous chalkboard and you'll see all the local farms within, let's say a hundred miles of that location down to, um, you know, the name of the farm and the ingredient that it's sourced from. So, um, again, from my perspective, just trying to scale that nationally is so interesting from a supply chain management standpoint, because it's, you know, really decentralized. It's a, it's a, it's a local regional program. Um, so what's so unique about Kevin's experience is, is he truly cares about where the ingredients are coming from. And, you know, usually the restaurants he's with like, uh, true food currently, wants to share that experience with the guest too. So that's what I kind of want to get into is what principle exists at your core to drive the decision-making from purchasing within true food, for an example. Mm -hmm. Um, And that that's key to the success of the brand, but also kind of part of your strategy for, for sourcing. Yeah. I mean, I think really part of, uh, our branding message, but it really sticks to me is sourcing with integrity. And I think that's really what we, you know, encapsulates what we do here. And, um, one thing throughout my, you know, the last so many years is sourcing, um, where everything matters, not, um, you know, the top three ingredients and then don't worry about the rest. So we really apply our principles of how we source which also includes guardrails for clean ingredients. It also includes guardrails for sustainability and the impact we have on this planet. And we apply that to as many ingredients as possible. And to me, that's when it starts getting into um, being something special where no matter what you order, what you try uh, at True Food, uh, it's, it's going to have some attributes that we hope make it not only taste more delicious, but also have you feeling kind of good when you leave, right? You're maybe healthy or maybe more sustainable or um, just really scratch cooked and really, really special. So that's how the team operates here. And um, it's, it's a collective effort and it has to be because if it can't just be me, it can't just be somebody on my team, everybody has to buy in. What disruption is creating the greatest opportunity in your role? Um, or even you can answer for the industry today. Um, you know, some people have related it to COVID and how it disrupted and and now has made a change for how they're they're making decisions or how their restaurants model. But um, for you, I imagine it to be different in in the context of, you know, just either food safety or food waste. But what do you believe is is creating a great opportunity for your role? I think what's unique for what we're, you know, what we're doing here is combining um, ESG and sustainability work with supply chain. Um, I think at first glance, you may say, why, <laughs> why is this person doing both? And it doesn't, doesn't make a lot of sense, but it actually does when you look at um, the impact that when you, you know, your direct spend or your purchases um, and your sourcing has on your business and the impact in the world, who you source for from how they produce their food uh, or products is really one of the biggest, um, definitely on the carbon uh, side of things is really, really impactful. But even beyond that, it, it can stand for who you are and 
we have open kitchens and you can see people taking produce out of the boxes. What does it say on that box? Just seeing that the fact that it's coming in and we're fresh prepping it, it, it just all that matters. And so I think what I think is a unique experience and an opportunity, especially as we look ahead, um, because I think I believe I'm bullish on sustainability and the impact and how it's going to show up in food service and the restaurant space. I think it's kind of a, a unique opportunity that I'm just as passionate about how I, how I source is um, same thing with our impact with, with sustainability. Okay. So I'm, I'm curious about just sourcing with sustainability in mind. Um, I do believe, yeah, the two are a lethal combination. So combining that in your role, it makes a lot of sense. Um, how do you feel the visibility is into understanding, let's say like kind of a scorecard for the commodity that you're sourcing? How do you really get to understand, you even mentioned just how you have to think about, you know, everything matters. So, um, mm -hmm. where it's sourced from, but also the practices that are involved in, in, you know, growing the ingredient I imagine are important too. So is the information readily available for you to really kind of understand that or how do you get to the, to the heart of it? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And there are some, um, organizations really trying to improve and help folks like in, in my seat and, and teams that I'm on to have that information more readily available and like a, in, in a database form, because the truth is I've been to a lot of places in this country. I put my boots in the ground of the soil of amazing farmers that are so inspirational. I really recommend when people say connect to your food, don't, you know, don't read the box in the grocery store. Don't just, you know, um, uh, I don't know that go, don't go to distributor, go all the way back to the folks planting the seeds and, and what they're doing. Cause it's, it's, it's hard work and it's really special and it's the backbone of, of our industry. Um, but to get all of their information of all the efforts they're making to grow their food and you know care about the soil health and and the planet is is hard to with all the transactions and all the objectives that we have in my in a role such as myself at True Food Kitchen and I'm imagining at any supply chain role um, it's just a lot of information and it's it, it's a lot to take in and try to figure out so I think that's is a really really true challenge is how do you capture this information, process it, and then make decisions off of it. You know, if something's five cents a pound more, but it's grown so much better, uh, it could be, it could be totally worth it. Looking at that true, true cost portfolio as, as something I say, what's the, you got your P and L costs, you got your total cost to the system as well. And so in my past, we've kind of developed our own system to kind of assess that. Right. And it really was the driving force behind our sourcing decision. So we'd say, all right, the price is X, but guess what? Here's all the parameters of where this food, this item came from, who grew it and why, um, you know, and I think it's, it, it, I look forward to the day where it's a little bit more intuitive and we can trust some systems that say, Hey, if you source this ingredient from this, from this supplier, it, it's going to be special. It's going to be better. I'm listening for some of the folks that their marketing hasn't quite caught up with the with the sustainability initiatives that they have or that the mission behind their brand really reflecting some of this, but they want to start somewhere. Um, and, and, and typically, yeah, it does cost more. You know, I'm thinking of organics, for an example. Mm -hmm. You know, what where would you say would be a good place to start or what would you say to encourage those that are, again, in a purchasing or a sourcing role that it isn't the primary goal to to, to reflect sustainability? Um, you know, and also have, you know, cost measures that they need to hit? Well, that's, it's a great question. I mean, and there's also, we could talk about having too many stories and too much information to, to share as well as a really big challenge when you're interacting with a consumer and you only have a few seconds for them to make a selection. Right. And, but to try to showcase that. So there's, there's that side too. It's, it's a, it's a delicate balance that not many folks have figured out. So it's your question's great. If you're just trying to start, um, start out, I really would say what, what is the most impactful thing or group of things that you can do? Um, there's something called a materiality assessment where it says, what's, what's important to your brand internally? What's, what was your brand built on? 
and then what matters to to the world um right so in sustainability the concepts can be complex but we're all fighting the same challenges so once you kind of unlock and understand you know food waste reduction carbon emissions water uh you know um diversity, et cetera, there's, there's a swath of, of opportunities and you kind of intersect those two. So what's important to us, what's important to the world that has the most impact. And then you'll, you'll see what kind of bubbles to the top between those two. And that's really where you should try to strategically say, how can we have impact and make that better and lead there? And then look, tie it back to how you source and what you buy that would reflect that. So, you know, a, burger, a hamburger chain is going to have a different, uh, you know, priority list than than True Food Kitchen would because you know we're, we're a little more plant based, right? So for us, produce matters. And then you get into the Dirty Dozen, and then Dr. Weil, who's our founder, he has uh, you know his whole uh, integrative medicine approach, and so those are priorities for us. And then you try to say, well, what is, what matters to the consumer, right? What will they understand? And I do think for us, right certified organic produce does matter um, because it just really ties in well. So I think a guest who's coming in, sitting down at Trupa Kitchen wants to see that organic, which is a very recognizable term on our menu. Now, for us, we're saying, how far do you go? Does everything, does everything have to be organic? Can it be? Because it probably can't. And then how do you relay that? And then for us, it's even getting into the world of regenerative or certified regenerative um, to, to kind of keep pushing the, the narrative and the expectations. I love it. So those are the basics, but I want to hear more about the, the ESG initiatives that you have in place at True Food Kitchen. Or another way of asking this is if I go in for the first time and I'm looking at the menu, what are some of the examples of things going on behind the scenes of those ingredients that perhaps you haven't shared yet that kind of speak toward just the mission behind the brand in total? Yeah, I mean, it's <clears throat> coming into this role, it was, it was exciting because um, there were so many, there's so many good things that we're, we, we were doing. And now I just look at it as preserving those decisions and then um, strategically kind of articulating and, and being consistent with, with our decisions moving forward. So, you know, for us, um, Again, more plant-based focus. So our kale salad is always going to be there and be really important. If you haven't had the ancient grains bowl, it's my go-to. It's phenomenal. Uh, but you know, we do have some beef on on our menu, and that has to be 100% grass-fed. And the expectations. Additionally, when you when you go to sources, how's the how's the animal treated? And for me, there's there's a couple pathways. You get to know your producer, your supplier, and you get into the details of, of what they do to harvest uh, the animal. On the flip side, the best way to communicate that, in my opinion, is through a, a you know, certification. So for us, we're really passionate about certain certifications that we value, such as Certified Humane. <clears throat> so you mentioned Vital Eggs, Certified Humane, very, resonates well with uh, customers, guests, because they, they go to the grocery store and see that logo. And then and research and then you know so on beef same thing then i actually think our seafood is is one of the most exciting categories every seafood item we have has a the highest standard that we can find <clears throat> and uh and so you know our our tuna is wild caught it's msc certified we can't put that on our menu just yet because there's a whole process but you know um we have that confidence, right? It's, it's uh, with, with the certifications and right down the line of, of all the other items. In fact, um, the culinary team and myself have plans to visit uh, all of our seafood suppliers uh, by, you know, in the next year or so to once again, put eyes on the process, not just see the certification, but understand what it takes and what's different and unique and extra. So when we're looking at the cost model of saying, one salmon costs X and the other one is Y. Oh, well, we saw with the extra steps, love and care and everything they do to put into that. It's, it's a higher standard product and it also tastes just as delicious, if not more uh, as well. And so we're, we're going to invest in that, in that, that salmon instead. 
putting eyes on the process or traveling the path of your product. We've heard this come up on a couple different conversations. And I really, I, I know that's very important to understanding your cost inputs. A question just came to mind as you were talking and that's, so your culinary team goes on some of these trips, which is fantastic. And we see that traditionally occur, but how does that information get downloaded to your staff that are coming up next to the table and speaking to the guests that have questions on the menu and any, any support to provide kind of, again, that information download? Yeah, that's, I, like I said, I, I don't have the secret recipe there it's with social media and, uh, you know, campaigns online and even your website, you can, for the, those who are most interested, can seek it out and, and, mm -hmm. and get details and information. But when, especially with a pretty diverse menu, it has to be, it's, it's really a science, I guess, art and science of how to connect with your, your guests. I mean, at, at True Food, our, our wine list is all super sustainable, biodynamic, organic, et cetera, as well. And, and so it's not even just the food, it's, it's the beverage menu too, to say it's a pretty curated list of ingredients. That's, that's everyone has a story and it's, everyone's usually a positive story in terms of, of optionality of what's available. And so that's really where it comes down to training, I think training your front of house staff when for the sit down experience, that's, that's really special because the to go, if you're ordering online, if you look at something, you may say, Hey, uh, what is, what is grass fed beef versus regular beef? You can kind of probably Google it really quickly if you want, but it, in the moment that, you know, it's on the menu, it's abbreviated, but that's really where you can have a special evening. If you, you have a great wait, wait staff that can kind of tell you why it's so, so magical or special. Yeah. And I think bottom line too, is, is saying what you said earlier, the information is there for those that want to be able to access it. So having it on the website available, mm -hmm. but when you're sitting down, just being presented with ingredients, um, you know, simple sometimes is better, especially when you get served a plate of food. And like I said, it's just so delicious, it, delicious. It leaves you just feeling good about yourself and your body after you've eaten there. Yep. And I just I would jump in and say, we also want to have no, you know, some people want to deep dive and they're, and we, we love fielding those questions. We get them every day. Uh, and then some people, it's really about building a trust relationship, right? Hey, I, I'm not really interested in the details, but I just want to go to a place to, today that food's great, tastes delicious. And I just know they, they do the right thing whenever they can. And so that's really why back to that strategy of sourcing and sourcing with integrity and being consistent with what you do. Like I said, everything matters. So we can create that, that relationship with the guest. So that answers that question. What values your brand is grounded in sourcing with integrity? I imagine, um, I, take me back to just risks and issues. I mean, regardless of, um, values and, and there's, there's going to be risks that we hit or, or issues mm -hmm. that we hit. How, how do you identify them or, or what is your strategy to kind of understand or look ahead in any way possible um, or, or reduce kind of repeat issues as, as again, they come in so frequent in our field? It's great. Uh, great question. And a couple come to mind. The first one is, and I've dealt with this more often than I would have imagined. I mentioned a little bit uh, in the meal kit days, but uh, also here um, at every step is finding unique ingredients is great but you have to start thinking can i get this at volume of this product at 5x or 10x uh supply i mean there's a crazy story at sweet green where we we put on a menu a squash that hadn't been grown yet there had been culinary got one uh of the squash from a very special seed company and grower and it just hadn't been grown and we had to convince six farms around the country to take a shot at growing this guarantee the sale and then have it grown and, and then delivered to where it needed to go. It's all of our restaurants through our supply, amazing supply chain. And we hadn't really tried it. It could have been not delicious. It could have been a problem with the product. And so we learned from that and it was great. It actually worked out well. Again, I, my team, absolutely amazing to even 
attempt this, let alone pull it off pretty much flawlessly. But that was like a learning moment there saying, I don't know if we can do this again because, um, and that's where testing comes in and then building for scale. So similarly, you can find the most unique ingredient can be the healthiest thing. I'm, you know, we use baru nuts here and uh, a true food was new to me, very, very healthy and delicious uh, nut. But if all of a sudden there was 10x amount of true foods tomorrow, I don't know if we could get that supply. So it's, 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 uh, it's a good problem to have, right? If you're growing that much, but also for the supply chain folks out there, look ahead years ahead, three to five years and say, can we do this? Now, the lever we pull at true food is we can, um, we change our menus four times a year. And so we, you can kind of adjust and look ahead to the future year and plan accordingly. Uh, but if you have a more static menu, uh, it could be a little bit more difficult. And, you know, on the, on the menu and the, and the brand side, we often have the, the challenge of once again, explaining not just the ingredient information, but the unique ingredients that we'll use, whether it's for health reasons, Dr. Wiles, uh, um, his integrated medicine approach, but you know, kelp, for example, I'm the biggest fan of kelp. So we have a kelp kimchi. The question is, sounds really interesting. It's actually delicious, but can you take folks who have don't even haven't had kimchi, let alone or kelp and have been avoiding them and get them to engage with that too much of that approach is, is off-putting or, or confusing to the guests. You've got to do it in a way that makes it exciting, interesting, and gets the, the guests curious to say, you know, and so you sur kind of surround it with more familiar food items or menu items. So lots of hidden complexity at times, but really if your team is up for the challenge to problem solve, you, you can figure out great ways to get around it. Yeah, it's so interesting. I, when you mentioned the squash story, when I, I used to work for a distributor as a sales rep and my, my favorite month to sell was in August because our list of local items was just beautiful. And we'd have globe squash and all these unique items that I knew my clients that were able to take on with flexibility, you know, the the items that just kind of popped up in that month from a from a local farm of ours and maybe not necessarily on their menu, but they had arranged some sort of flex space, whether it's a, a chef's dinner, you know, every other week mm -hmm. um, or they didn't necessarily know in advance um, because let's say I bring it in and then they've got something planned that they want to put it on the menu for the next month. Well, you know, we all know that something could happen yeah. very easily that, that, that item becomes, you know, just not, not, not available that next month. And that was the greatest challenge. It was the number one thing I was asked for. What have you got that's local, new and different, right? And then just trying to provide a, a consistent source for it. Um, totally. Yeah. I've, I've had, I've had chefs tell me, don't do that to me. And we had yeah. to build out these amazing seasonality charts for very specific ingredients. Right. I mean, you can even say availability, then you can say quality. I mean, I was chatting with somebody yesterday. How hard are peaches to get right in mm -hmm. season by like, especially if you want to do a local peach. It's like oh, a few weeks, a very short burst. Then they taste unbelievable. And you want everybody on the planet to have one. And then other times they're they're just really difficult from a quality and deliciousness perspective. So it can be availability and also can be quality, right? And so quality. you try to nail it as best you can, but it, it's it's complicated. And it, as you know, it changes every year. It's slightly typically. So yeah, for sure. All right. So talk to us a little bit about the future as far as you know. So, um, you know, what does success look like for you in this current role in the next year to five years? And, you know, where is True Food Kitchen headed? Great question. Um, I think, you know, to speak about True Food, I, um, it's, it's pretty, it's a cool moment because we've got a huge runway to grow our um, flagship, as we call them locations where we're, we're pretty spread out, but we've got plenty of, of white space to, to hit with what we're doing. Um, within those, those four walls, it's how can we evolve the brand, which started in 2008 to be more inclusive, um, and, and keep the energy high around, um, healthy and sustainable food to once again, to folks that live and breathe it, uh, every day. And then folks that are just starting their journey and saying, Hey, you know, I want to try something a little bit 
different. I, I want to see if healthy and delicious can coexist, which they can. So it's really just expanding that net. And then we're looking at all sorts of different, um, different channels and different opportunities to take our food. Yes. Offsite, like so many other brands, it's, it's definitely doing well for us, but even, even different formats. So I'm excited. That's kind of why I'm, I'm here. I'm energized by the, the like forward looking strategic approach of growing true food. I'd say within my role, um, there's plenty to, I'd say it's one of the first times in my career because I just jumped from different industries almost with, you know, similar, but not different sides of the fence. It's the first time where I've actually have a little more opportunity to take my learnings, recent learnings and apply them uh, more effectively. And so I'm, we're, we're building right now. The team is building, we're building our strategies, we're, we're building our go forward plan. And that's going to take some time on the supply chain side. Um, and then I've got to learn a whole new section that I, I have. It's, it's similar, but for example, beverage, it's, we've got a, an amazing beverage category. They said that I haven't done that before or to this extent. So I'm learning too, which is like my favorite thing to do is learn new things. So, and then I'd say really building the, the ESG, uh, strategy and what we do two levels where I think we can, we can take it because what's interesting about ESG is that right now you, if, if you're small or, or, um, you know, it's, you can kind of be selective of what you want to work on and do, but eventually as you become more public facing and, and grow, people ask a lot more questions. And then that's where you have to be more consistent and have answers and have efforts behind what's in, you know, what matters to a whole group of people. So I just want our company to, uh, true food to be ready for those questions. And, and it, there's a lot to that. So I've got plenty on my plate right now, but, uh, it keeps me energized every day and in the office early and, uh, and loving what I'm doing. I'm so excited for you. They are lucky to have you. And, um, it's, it's, I love learning new things too. So that's so fascinating. You're gonna start, you know, getting into the beverage category just as a result of this comprehensive role. So very cool. Yeah, totally. All right. Well, a few personal questions before we wrap up. Um, we like to always ask about a daily habit that keeps you grounded. That is a great question. Um, I would say I, I didn't do it this morning because of this podcast, but it's my <laughs> commitment. But normally I try to during the week because we're in an office setting. I try to take a 10 to 15 minute walk and uh, kind of listen to calming sounds or music. And it sounds, sounds a, maybe a little silly to some people, but I really try to be high, really present. And I'll even just acknowledge things that I see you know, and it's probably the same stuff because it's the same little walk that I do, but or, um, or not. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, uh, whether it's birds or the, the mountain landscape, et cetera. And I found that over the last year getting in that habit, just kind of, instead of, I used to rush into the, you know, supply chain, you have a lot of fires, just get in the car, yeah. go d deal with the fires, et cetera. You, you're walking, looking at your phone as you walk in, taking these 10 to 15 minutes, uh, uh to start the day kind of. It starts at a level playing field and then you get going. So that would be one that I've really enjoyed um, quite a bit here in the last 12 months. Good one. How about a tool or a strategy in your workday that saves you the most time? Yeah, um, I think saves the most time for me. I've, I've Attention is, is something that uh, it's a gift and a curse, right? I can juggle a ton of balls. Um, and cover a lot of ground. Supply chain's complex. Sustainability can be complex uh, day in and day out. So for me, I just have my system that I stick to every week, every day of what what are the priorities for that day, and uh, and kind of when I start to feel like, what am I doing right now? <laughs> Ten people ran in here. I just had yeah. a meeting. I'm checking emails. I'm doing all this stuff at once. But am I actually moving? what matters. And that's when I go back to my priority list that I put together to start the week. I actually feel like not sick, but like off. If I don't have my, my priority list set for the week, I, I, I feel off. So I go back to that and say, where am I? What am I doing? And then I reset. So for me, that's my go-to move that keeps me grounded. 
How about to the next generation of supply chain or folks coming into a procurement role? What is your best secret that you're willing to share? Uh, I've got a, probably a couple. Um, I would say, once again, you know, go all the way back to the source of the product when you can. Um, there's a difference between meeting a sales rep and, and connecting, and that's very valuable. Uh, and I do that all the time. But I remember going to some of these farms with my, I'm, I'm a sneakerhead, which we didn't get into probably next podcast, we can talk about that. But I have my new really Nikes on and, and, you know, looking sharp. And then next thing you know, I'm in a muddy field. And, you know, I had a choice of saying like, oh, that's good. Let's skip that. And I was like, you know what? Screw the sneakers. I'm going in. I want to learn what organic matter and soil is, et cetera. And so, you know, really dive in and understand what it takes, where the food comes from, who grows it, who harvests it. Oh my gosh. Like just all the people that are so committed to this, to this industry and, and, and then follow it all the way through distributors, right? They're, they're the, they're the hidden secret to our industry, but what is it, what does it require for them? And just really understand from seed and soil all the way to the plate when you can. The second one is a lot of folks have reached out to me with great energy around um, sourcing sustainably, right? How do you do it? How do you get into it? There's not that many opportunities. I'm really passionate about food. Um, and my, one of my first things that I said is to say is uh, you actually need to understand the current food system and how yeah. it works as much as you can. Because you can't change something you don't understand where, where it's at. And, and so right. I really encourage them to go, go work for a produce distributor. Go, go you know, understand how things are if you want to change it. And then take your applied knowledge of sustainable sourcing on top of that. And I think that's been a big secret for me is I came from the traditional world uh, and then learn the sustainability side and was able to apply it. And I think that's allowed my teams and myself to have more impact than, than I think we would have otherwise. So. I'm glad you remembered that one. Cause that's a really good one. And man, can that be applied to so many different other examples, but yeah, before you come in and just change everything, understand the model as its traditional form is first, get to know the process and work in as many different spokes of that process as you can to be able to put the whole mm -hmm. wheel together. Um, that can be applied to so many different, you know, things in terms of just career mentorship and where to start, you know, just grab those experiences and, and then eventually you can connect the dots in a really lovely way. So I love that. Cool. How about mentors? I mean, food is obviously very important to you. Have you always eaten healthy? Was there a specific mentor for you in this area and in what way? Yeah, there definitely has been a lot. Um, I, and uh, I would say, you know, my, my mother, my grandfather, uh, her, her dad were into healthy foods and eating um, way before, you know, from the beginning. And so there was that, I think I was drawn to where I am today because um, in the beginning, I would sell what we'd sell at my family's business, whatever the customer wanted. And honestly, a little bit, whatever the supplier was recommending. Um, and I would drive home and I'd say, I wish there was a way to um, sell more produce or more clean food, simple ingredients, you know, uh, instead of breaded this or that, et cetera, all, like, which was dominated what we did. Um, and so I'd say it was cool to actually find a world that re resolved that conflict that I had, whereas like I'd go home and eat really, really healthy, but I'd sell a lot of stuff that, um, you know, was very indulgent. Um, it was just over indexed. So now I'm kind of in that sweet spot of best of all worlds. Um, so that was inspirational from, from my family side. I'd say um, one of the, my favorite inspirations was um, I took a trip to Montana to understand and uh, where our lentils and our chickpeas were grown and a past job are organic. And I got to uh, meet uh, the founder. I, I call him the founding father of the organic movement, but Dave Owen, who headed up Timeless Seed. And there's actually a book called Lentil Underground uh, about him and his team and his quest. And um, he 
he talked to me like um and spent time with me as if you know we were family and friends and kind of really really educated me on on the world of soil health and sustainability and uh to this day he's still a mentor of mine i i stay connected with him and he's as warm and as helpful as anybody ever has been and and that just keeps me super energized and and push forward to a world where i think we can get to in a not too distant future of delicious food that's good for our bodies and good for the planet as well can you say the name of his book again i would love to include that in the show notes it sounds awesome it's called Lentil Underground. And awesome. I, I met the author and I can't remember Liz, Liz something. So uh, it's, yeah, it was really interesting. It's, um, just, just, you know, to renegade farmers, right? Doing things that people hadn't done before in, in this country and, and going for it and, and figuring it out. And so I think um, that's been inspirational in my path too, right? Um, there's, there are ways that, it, Folks always do it, but uh, if you believe in your heart that there's a different way that could be better, take a shot, go for it and see what happens. And I think we will end on that. It's a great, great final words. Awesome. Um, so I, I, I always ask this, but I am, I'm so clear that people are going to want to find you, reach out to you, ask questions about some of these principles you've covered and potentially, you know, some examples of where to start given my menu and supply chain. Where can people find you? Are you on LinkedIn? Um, whatever you'd yep. like to offer. I would say LinkedIn's definitely uh, easy to find me and uh, that would be a great place. Um, I kind of use that as my digital Rolodex of sorts, right? I think a lot of us do. So I'm happy to uh, respond there if anybody does want to reach out. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Lauren. This was pretty cool. I appreciate it. Awesome. And thank you for those listening. If you learned something today or believe someone else can uh, benefit from this conversation, please share it and tell someone about this podcast, Grounded. Thank you again, Kevin. This has been another exciting episode of Grounded. And that wraps up another episode. We have covered a lot of ground today. Thank you for joining. For show notes and our most updated market report, visit us at groundedthepod.com. Grounded is powered by the Buyer's Edge Produce Division. Our mission is to provide innovative solutions and excellent service to food service operators by leveraging technology, talent, and an insatiable appetite to improve.